This is a Vault Studios production. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of experts in their field and do not reflect the opinions or views of Vault Studios or Tegna. Additionally, all suspects are presumed innocent until proven guilty in a court of law, and any and all crimes are alleged until a court finds otherwise. I'm Eric Flack. This is Anything You Say, an inside look at the tactics the experts use to get a suspect talking. I know, I know you want to tell us. I, I, can, I can see it in your face. So few people will believe that a person would confess to something they didn't do, especially when the stakes are pretty high. You do have a right to remain silent. This week on Anything You Say, you'll spend time in an interrogation room in Toledo, Ohio, where investigators grill a teenager for information about the murder of a 13-year-old boy, information that he would later claim was false. June 15th, 1998. It's early in the morning, just before daybreak, and the streets of Toledo, Ohio, they're quiet. But that quiet scene is disrupted when a driver headed down Horace Street in Toledo's Roosevelt neighborhood slams on the brakes. He's spotted something in the middle of the road. Two men were returning home from work early morning. We're talking about 4 a.m. And they came across the body lying in the middle of the street. The body of a young boy is lying face up in the middle of the roadway. And as the two men get out of their vehicle to take a closer look... They can tell he's dead. They immediately go home and call police. Brian Duggar, an investigative reporter, has covered this story extensively for WTOL 11 in Toledo. And the police showed up and they believed that the body had been hit by someone, a hit, you know, a driver that had hit him and then taken off. But when they rolled the body over, they could see that he had uh, four bullet holes in the back of his head. The body was that of 13-year-old Maurice Purify. He was a well-liked kid around the neighborhood who could often be found playing basketball at the park. Maurice had been at his grandma's house late the night before he was killed and was walking home in the early morning hours when the murder took place. When police arrived at the scene, his pockets, they had been turned inside out, and his shoes, they were lying next to him. Aside from that, there really wasn't much evidence to go on. There really wasn't anything at the scene. There, there were casings uh, nearby. They found a bike that was thrown into a dumpster. They believed it may have been Reese's bike because he was often seen on a bike. But at that point, there was no other physical evidence about what happened. The murder of Maurice Purify quickly became a high-profile news story. A 13-year-old boy gunned down in the middle of the street without any apparent explanation. And given the lack of physical evidence, investigators turned to the Crime Stoppers tip line for possible answers. Yeah, the day after the murder, somebody called the police tip line and they said, we overheard this known drug dealer around town, Aaron Pettis, say that he had killed this kid that was in the news. Aaron Pettis was brought in for questioning, and he demanded a polygraph test. When he passed that test, police released him. And at least for a little while, the tips, they dried up. But a little over two months later, in August of 1998, investigators zeroed in on a new suspect, 18-year-old Travis Slaughter, after a woman they identified as his girlfriend called the tip line. And she had said that Travis admitted to me that he killed 
you know, the kid that's in the news, Maurice Purify. Early on August 27th, 1998, police picked up Travis Slaughter at his mom's home. Slaughter would later tell Brian Duggar about that morning. You know, when he was brought in for the interrogation, he was extremely hungover. He had drank an entire bottle of liquor the night before. He had been smoking marijuana. He was extremely high. He was hungover. He was very tired. He was laying on his couch. And all of a sudden, the front door exploded inward. And these guys, you know, he called stormtroopers. You know, they busted in. They had all their, their gear on. They immediately grabbed him. They threw him down on the ground. And a detective actually walked in, looked at him as one of the uh, SWAT guys was kneeling on him. And he said, let's get him and take him downtown. Slaughter says his game plan for the morning of August 27th, it was pretty typical. Get up, eat some cereal, watch some rap music videos. Instead, police came crashing through the front door of his mom's home, wanting to talk to him about a murder. This week, we are joined by William Douglas Woody, a professor of psychological sciences at the University of Northern Colorado, who has researched police interrogations and confessions. He collaborates with Professor Krista D. Forrest at the University of Nebraska Kearney. She and I study jurors' perceptions of interrogation evidence. We've made our contributions to the peer-reviewed literature in that way. And of course, in the process of studying how jurors perceive and understand and use confession evidence, we've had to develop a very broad understanding of police interrogation, uh, historically, legally, psychologically, and in other ways. This has led to our perspective about the totality of the circumstances that we embrace in our recent book by New York University Press. That book, Understanding Police Interrogation, Confessions, and Consequences, looks at the psychological science behind confessions, specifically the factors that have been shown to increase the likelihood of false confessions, the ways they interact and how they contribute to what's known as the totality of the circumstances in a given case. As Professor Woody points out, they can be divided into three categories. Three general categories. The first of them is that some people really are more vulnerable to false confession. So some suspects are more vulnerable. Professor Forrest and I separate vulnerability into what we call trait and state vulnerability, where we talk about trait vulnerability not necessarily as personality traits, but long-term characteristics about someone. So being a juvenile rather than an adult, someone with a psychological disorder, someone with low IQ or a cognitive disability. These are long-term factors about a person that makes them more vulnerable to false confession. Then there's state vulnerability, which refers to short-term characteristics, fatigue, stress, intoxication, addiction, withdrawal, stuff like that. The second category is investigatory biases. Police are human, social, and cognitive decision makers like the rest of us. And just like anyone, members of law enforcement, they can struggle with things like confirmation bias or groupthink. The third and final category is actual tactics used by interrogators. So some of these can include things like minimization. If I'm a police investigator, I convince you, the suspect, that this is not such a serious legal or moral violation. Another one can be maximization, again, where I maximize the legal or moral severity of the crime. 
And of course, uh, a technique that is sometimes called the most controversial technique allowed in U.S. police interrogation is the false evidence ploy. If a police investigator tells a suspect that evidence exists to implicate the suspect in the crime and that evidence does not actually exist. In other words, lying to a suspect about evidence. And yeah, believe it or not, that's legal. And that's also associated with increased false confession rates in experimental studies. And there are false evidence ploys in almost every documented false confession. We should mention that the interrogation we're going to be examining in this episode is over six hours long. And Professor Woody has only reviewed specific small sections of it. For that reason, his insights on those sections should not be interpreted as conclusions about the interrogation as a whole, its outcome, or the totality of the circumstances in this case. Okay, you in school? No, no, no. You graduate? No. How far did you go? Uh, 10th grade. 10th grade? We're now inside the interrogation room as Toledo Police Detective James Scott sits across from Travis Slaughter, the 18-year-old police brought in for questioning in connection to the murder of Maurice Purify. According to the timestamp on the footage, it's just past 9.30 in the morning. Slaughter, he seems exhausted, maybe even confused as to how he went from starting a lazy morning at his mom's house to being in an interrogation room, going over Miranda rights and answering questions about his personal life. And if you remember, Slaughter says he was hungover and high when the cops picked him up. All factors that, generally speaking, have the potential to affect a suspect's vulnerability in an interrogation. People may arrive already very stressed, already very scared, already very tired. Um, There may already be questions, for example, about whatever he was doing before that point in time. So I don't know if there are questions about addiction or withdrawal or other things like that. Um, But he was likely quite stressed and maybe even tired, depending on how long he was awake. Detective Scott starts out by asking Slaughter about his friends, his closest buddies. Slaughter says he doesn't have friends anymore, that the only friends he did crossed him. Chad, we want to start out by asking you about who are some of your close buddies that you hang out with, your closest friends, your boys, in other words. I ain't got no friends. You ain't got no friends? I used to have friends, but... They crossed me and I threatened to kill him, so they stopped messing with him. Slaughter says these friends of his, the ones he had a falling out with and, according to him, threatened to kill, are named Wayne and Bub, a nickname for someone named Carl. Their full names would later be revealed to be Wayne Brady and Carl Willis, and both of those names will come back later in this story. For now, though, Travis just says they all stopped hanging out after Carl and Wayne made fun of him for having, as he puts it, mental problems. He says he has a short temper and went off on them. He also says, other than Braddy and Willis, he's never really had any friends. He's quiet, and he knows he's a little different than other teenagers. I don't see nothing wrong with me. I'm a quiet person. I don't mess with nobody unless they mess with me. Okay. Detective Scott then gets around to asking about Maurice Purify, the 13-year-old boy who was shot to death in the street a couple months earlier. What do you know about the kid that was killed? Sure, he'd heard about the murder in the news, just like everyone else in Toledo. He knew what happened, what school Maurice went to, things like that. But he says 
that was it. He wouldn't be hanging out with a kid five years younger than him. Well, we understand you had a beef with him. Say what? You had a beef with him. I don't hang around no little kids. Professor Woody points out something he noticed in this specific section, leading questions, or questions that guide a suspect towards a specific answer. We see some leading questions where um, we understand that you knew the victim, that you know this particular person with this name was the victim. We understand that you had a beef with him, that these are, yes, these are questions to which the suspect only has to agree, not provide their own unprompted narrative. So we see leading questions fairly consistently through this section. Who told, who told you this? We heard you had a beef with him. Is that correct? Wrong. Huh? Wrong. I know that little kid. But who told you this? You got some guys that tell us a few things. Detective Scott plants this seed early on. The implication that they have some guys, multiple people, giving them information. It's an apparent attempt to make Slaughter sweat a little bit wonder who might have contacted them. What did they say? But in more than two decades since this interrogation took place, no police or court records have indicated that anyone other than that woman who called the tip line had provided any information implicating slaughter. If the detectives are lying about that evidence, if they're bluffing, well, that's considered a false evidence ploy. Now, As I mentioned earlier, these false evidence ploys, they're still legal in the United States, just like they were back in 1998 when this interrogation was conducted. However, lots of people don't know that, and some believe the opposite to be true. So looking at this case, Travis Slaughter may have believed, mistakenly, that the detectives interrogating, they were required to tell him the truth, but they weren't. The data about what people believe about police lying suggests that he is at least, there's a reasonable likelihood that he may believe. And based on surveys of people who are in the criminal justice system, as well as surveys of college students and others, there is a reasonable possibility that he might believe incorrectly that police cannot lie. Or another erroneous but common belief is if police lie during an interrogation, the confession cannot be admitted to trial, and that's also false. So there's a variety of ways that he may misunderstand this or may not may not be aware, pardon me, that police are allowed to lie about evidence. Responding to Detective Scott's claim that they've been receiving calls from multiple people, Slaughter says the only explanation would be that someone, they're trying to frame him, to blame him for a crime he didn't commit. Who would want to blame you? Lots of people, so-called friends. They probably did it themselves and trying to put it on me. I'm telling you, we got guys saying that you and Bob and his doubt, okay? I need to know who, though. Huh? I, I, I need to know who. Well, we're going we gonna to leave it like this for right now. So we want you to tell us about that. So I can't speak broadly about how to interpret his denials this way, but he does deny consistently through here. And there's at least a reasonable likelihood that he believes that police are telling him the truth about evidence. I noted just within the very small samples that I saw different um, potential false evidence ploys. As I noted in my notes, these say potential because I don't know the actual state of the evidence. And I can't tell whether they say that, um, uh, for example, if you were there like people were saying you were there, 
if they really have people who placed slaughter there or if or if this is fabricated. Uh huh, I seen it in the paper and on the news and my mom was telling me about it. Like ain't that so sad how somebody killed that boy and this and that and such and shit. Mm-hmm. I was like, yeah. Well, we got people saying that you did. Detective Scott, now he tries a couple other avenues. He says he's heard from multiple people that Slaughter has guns, but Slaughter says he doesn't. He asks if Slaughter sells drugs. Slaughter says no. He asks about gang affiliations. Slaughter says not anymore. And now, at this point, we hear from a second detective in the room. Just like uh, Detective Scott said, we didn't start looking at you today and decide to go kick in your door and, and pull you out of there. Okay, this is something we've done for a long time. We've looked at and we've talked to a lot of people. Okay, and it's not just one person saying that you were involved with this thing. It's, it's more than one. And if you were there, like people are saying that you were there, we need to know what happened. At this point in the interrogation, the detectives, they change subjects, bringing up a sexual assault case. At the time, Slaughter was the only suspect in the rape of a 12-year-old girl previous April. Slaughter would later admit guilt in that case, which was unrelated to the murder of Maurice Purify. When did you find out how old she was? I said a couple days after then she kept playing on my phone, talking about, you're going to go to jail, this and that, blah, blah. Detective Scott gets back to asking about Maurice. At one point, Slaughter asked for some specifics about the evidence against him. If anyone actually saw him the night Purify was killed, or if anybody had ever seen him with Purify ever. But of course, the detectives, they're not going to reveal whether or not they have those specific pieces of evidence. Instead, they keep things vague and eventually even start to suggest they have enough evidence to bring an indictment right then and there. And that if he doesn't tell them his side of the story, as Detective Scott puts it, he's rolling the dice. Are you willing to sit there and and roll the dice and we go to grand jury with what evidence we got? And you're not telling us your side of the story about what happened. You willing to roll the dice like that and take the real blunt of what's going to happen? I don't like dice. I don't even shoot dice, but... But I'm saying, you willing to take those chances? No. The interrogation, it's now dragged on for nearly an hour. And Slaughter, he seems exhausted. He's slumped over, he's resting his face on his hand, and he repeats the same answers. And I can look at you and tell that you know something about this. And you want to tell me too. But you're scared. What are you scared about? Nothing. Huh? Nothing. And the detectives, they're apparently tired of going in circles too. At one point, even suggesting they're going to call a prosecutor right then and there and have Slaughter charged. He either knows he either did it or he knows we did it. We're going to quit screwing around with it. If he ain't going to tell you the truth, let's call the prosecutor and just charge him with it and be done with it. He either tells you the truth or that's it. We're going to quit screwing with him. We spent enough time, we wasted enough time. If he ain't going to be honest with you, the hell with him. Okay. I'm being honest with you. No, you're not being honest with him. If you don't tell him the truth, then we're just going to I'm being honest with you, Okay. WTOL 11 would later report that they didn't actually make that call, at least not right then, to have Slaughter charged. 
It was simply another interrogation tactic. To be clear, an explicit threat is generally illegal. The case from the States, this is Brown versus the U.S., it dates to the 1890s. So it's saying out loud, if you confess, things will be good for you, or if you don't confess, terrible things will happen to you. To explicitly threaten or promise a suspect something has been grounds for ejection for a long time, at least potentially. So in these cases, the, again, I don't know what they did throughout the majority of the interrogation, but in the small sections that I've seen, having an officer say, they're not going to do anything, we should call the DA right now. Again, this person didn't say, if you don't confess to us, bad things will happen to you, but that might be a very clear message that's implicit in those words. So this shows up as maximization. Maximization refers to emphasizing the seriousness of a situation. For example, playing up the strength of evidence or the severity of the potential consequences. Minimization, on the other hand, well, that's a technique that involves playing down a suspect's role in a crime, making it seem like it's not a huge deal. Professor Woody noticed both of these techniques in the small pieces of the interrogation he reviewed. Uh, maximization again is associated with increased false confession rates in experimental studies, especially when it's paired with minimization. And we hear, again, in these very small samples, some minimization in a few different places. For example, you can't beat the system, but you can work with the system. Or when an officer tells a suspect that um, sometimes things can work out even when they start really bad or cooperation goes a long way, the truth is what's going to help. Just tell the truth. Like I said, the truth is what's going to help. I did not observe in the limited materials I saw an explicit promise that if you confess to me, you won't get in trouble, for example. I did not see that in the materials that I saw. But cooperation goes a long way. Don't you want to tell your side? Because remember, if we just hear other people's sides, what are they going to say? Don't you want to tell your side? Those are not explicit statements that if you confess, it will be better for you. But this is implicit in the suspect. Generally speaking, suspects hear this clearly. And these are also concerns. At this point in the interrogation, Detective Scott, he leaves the room, and another interrogator, Detective Tom Ross, it's his turn. This is something we see a lot in police interrogations, rotating out interrogators while the suspect remains in the room for hours upon hours on end. In this case, we hear three or four different voices questioning Travis Slaughter over the course of the full interrogation. Uh, there can be a variety of goals that this addresses. Uh, sometimes these are staffing issues. People who are officers running an investigation have to go to meetings, have to move to other cases. Sometimes, remember, this is law enforcement. It runs, it doesn't, it's not a 40-hour-week job. It runs 24-7, and it's hard to predict what's going to happen. So sometimes changes in staffing reflect the pressures of police staffing and people's needs to be somewhere else right now. And, of course, I can't, from watching these very limited clips out of the interrogation video, I can't determine what might drive this. Uh, we should also note that this is generally a very tiring process. This is a very emotionally intense process for the su generally for suspects and interrogators, and rotating people out and help the police officers stay fresh and give them breaks. Again, the suspect, if someone's trying to manage the police fatigue, generally speaking, the suspect is not given a break. Detective Ross, he's the new face in the room, he sticks to the same line as the other detectives, that he only wants the truth. But Slaughter, 
he sticks to his story too. You understand nobody wants to throw you in jail and throw the key away. You understand that, don't you? Yes. There's always light at the end of the tunnel. No matter how bleak or how dark things look now, there's always light at the end of the tunnel. Do you believe that? Yes. I believe that also. And you have to understand that it's in the best interest of this police department to get you out of any jam you're in, all right? All right. Get you straightened around in that. But they you want, have to do something on, on your part. Well, they want, they're trying to make me admit, admit to something I ain't doing. What do they want you to admit to? To a 12-year-old 12 murder okay. that I don't know nothing about. I never knew this kid. I never met well, him. Here's, here's the important thing. and You have to realize this above all else, that the truth has to come out, okay? The truth rules everything on this earth. I don't care what you bring up, what subject you bring up, the truth rules. All right, the truth is the best thing. Well, I've been telling on the truth since I've been arrested. Okay, but obviously there are people that are telling the police department something else, all right? And that's the main problem. Everybody... Well, the main problem is is that they know things that nobody else knows, and they would have had to learn from whoever did this bad thing, all right? Okay, and that's why you're here. The interrogation, it stretches on. Now it's ticking over the three-hour mark. And you have to ask yourself... What if Travis Slaughter is telling the truth? What if he had nothing to do with the murder? But the detectives, they're so convinced otherwise that they won't let up until he offers more information. Now, remember, Slaughter is an 18-year-old. He's exhausted. He's hungover. He's high, according to him. And it's being suggested again and again that his best option to avoid spending the rest of his life in prison is to give the detectives something to go on something other than the denial he's been repeating for hours. So what is the point at which a suspect would grow so tired, so desperate, that he would break down and admit to something he didn't do? After three hours of grueling back and forth, it's starting to feel like neither side is going to budge. But then, Slaughter, he changes his story saying he actually did see something the night Maurice Purify was killed. So I walked down that street, and I don't know who it was, but I had seen some shots fired at a little dude with a red T-shirt on. He was a small guy? Yeah. But was he a black, dude, black young man? Yeah, but the dude who shot him was a small. He was about his height. Okay. And y'all don't know a black. <clears throat> and he shot him about three or four times, and he ran. And then I stopped, and I was shocked. I was scared to go down there, because I, I seen him run up Robinson Hill, but I didn't know where he went after that. And he knew I, and he knew I seen him, because after he shot him, he looked my way. He, he looked did. right at you? And he was standing there for a little while, just staring at me. And he did his head like this, and then started running. Slaughter says he stood there for a half hour, in shock after witnessing a murder, then walked home and didn't tell anyone about what he saw. The detectives, they're not so convinced. Now, now you're there when this happens, okay? But you're leaving out something really, really important. And that was that you were a part of this, okay? And you're leaving that out. According to Professor Woody, this kind of partial confession isn't necessarily a sign of guilt. But it's not necessarily a sign of innocence either. In fact, admissions like this 
are features that we see in both true and false confessions. And so when we see uh, the slow journey toward confession that includes a, an admission to being there but not actually a confession, these appear in a wide variety of confessions, including those identified as true, those identified as false, and others. By this point in the interrogation, the detectives are no longer simply asking for the truth. They're actually telling Slaughter what the truth is, what they want him to admit. Some of it is the truth. Yes, we will grant you that. But it's not all the truth. The rest of the truth is that you were involved. The rest of the truth beyond that is that you're afraid to say it. You're afraid of the consequences. But still, the detectives, they're suggesting to Slaughter that the best way for him to help himself is to tell the truth, to give them more information. And here in America, man, being a young man, we Americans don't just throw the book at you like that. There's a chance, but it starts with the truth, nothing but the truth. That's where it starts at, and that's where it's going to end at, with the truth. After another 30 minutes of pressure, Slaughter finally offers a name. This guy that you say shot him, you recognize him? No, not really. Well, I mean, what do you mean not really? Do you recognize him, Jack? I didn't see him first. I just seen his heart. What do you think it was? The only person I know about that heart is is one dude named Wayne. Wayne who? Wayne Brady. They call him Wayne up. Wayne Brady. Brady. Wayne Brady. 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 B R A D D Y. Wayne Brady. That's one of those friends Slaughter mentioned he had a falling out with at the very beginning of the interview. Uh, I can't, from watching video, determine whether he's telling the truth or not. So that's one I can't address this way. Um, the person I know, the only person who's as tall as the shooter is Brady. And of course, the detectives do what we would want detectives to do in that case, which is push for more details. That, again, there are lots of people presumably live in Toledo, who are approximately that height. So they kept pushing back to, was it Wayne? Do you think it was Wayne? We see some leading questions, and you must have had some other reason. That's who you think it was? Probably. That's the only person I know that height. That's all. But come on, Travis. That, you know, it's do that. Was it Wayne? No. Huh? No. You think it was Wayne? No, I don't want to start a I don't know for sure. There's consistent interrupting and rejecting of denials in the small section that I watched of, again, the detective saying, well, you're leaving things out. And then as, as Slaughter denies again, interrupting the denial. Either you know it was him or you saw that it was him. Right. Or you sure. and him were involved. And then the detective said, you must come all the way clean. You need to come all the way clean to do justice. No problem with clean as I can. Come on, Travis. You're not, man. You're not coming clean as you can. And this is when uh, Slaughter's pushing back and actually says, so you want me to say something that's not true? And they say, no, we don't want you to admit something that's not true. Only something that's the truth. Slaughter actually says he'd have to lie in order to give them any new information. But still, the detectives, they're not satisfied with his story. 
I don't think the science is there for me to try to interpret from his denials whether he's guilty or innocent this way. What we do see is he does deny. He points out that he he claims at that point anyway that if he does something other than deny his involvement, he would be saying something false. And they appear to be very, very convinced of his guilt. Once again, we have a moment that on its own doesn't necessarily point to guilt or innocence. Sure, an innocent person might say they would have to lie in order to give information, but that's also something a guilty person might say. That may be the biggest challenge in this, is that confessions are so powerful that people over they come out of somebody's own mouth, people overwhelmingly believe confessions. And it is so hard to unpack. How do we... This is what a guilty person might say. It also might, might be what an innocent person might say. We start with the assumption that he's guilty. It looks very clearly like he is wanting to get out of punishment. If we uh, people believe he's innocent, it looks like he's representing his innocence. And of course, from where I'm sitting, looking at just a few small samples of the interrogation, I simply cannot tell. About an hour later, after yet another detective, Harold Mosley, gets involved, Slaughter changes his story again. Now, about five hours into the interrogation, he says he knows for sure that Wayne Brady was there that night, as well as that other man he mentioned at the start of the interrogation, Carl Willis. Who are the other two people? Wayne and Carl. Not only does Slaughter say Brady and Willis were there, but he says they were specifically looking for Maurice Purify because, according to Slaughter, Purify owed Willis some drug money. Slaughter says Braddy and Willis, they started beating Purify as he played, in his words, the lookout part. Okay, it's important now. You're being truthful with us, right? Right. How many times did you hit him? Nine. You didn't hit him not once. I just played the lookout part. Slaughter says Willis then pulled out a gun and proceeded to shoot Maurice Purify to death. Hey, did Wayne have a gun? No, Carl had the gun. Okay, and Carl's the only one did all the shooting. Yeah. And here's the thing. As he talks about the shooting, Slaughter seems more energized than he has for the past five or so hours of this interrogation. He's quicker to offer details. And at one point, he even gets up out of his chair to reenact the shooting. He reenacts it in ways that are are quite powerful to watch. Again, he gives lots of rich detail about what's happening there. In a study of exonerated individuals out of the Innocence Project file. So DNA verified exoneration. So now people released on technicality, people who have been exonerated and are believed to be innocent. What we find is that false confessions are rich in detail. Again, as we said before, sensory details, emotional details, motivational details, uh, sometimes very intensely so. There are cases of of people confessing sometimes even with realistic reenactments to the point of which these are intense to watch and then confessions that are either highly doubted or people have been exonerated and that brings us back to the same challenge we discussed earlier false confessions and true confessions they can look almost exactly the same in both cases a suspect may offer a lot of rich detail or even reenact a crime 
So in other words, uh, an assumption some people may bring is, oh, if anyone ever reenacts it, it must surely be true. There are documented false confessions that show that is not the case. After reenacting the shooting and answering a few more questions, Slaughter says he's finally told the full story, the full truth, that he isn't leaving anything out this time. Is there anything else that you're leaving out that's important that you need to tell us? No. The detectives finally wrap up the interrogation more than six hours after it began. They get Slaughter some cigarettes, some food, a can of soda. And when the detectives are finally gone, before the video ends, Slaughter can be heard calling it his last meal. In 1999, following this interrogation, Travis Slaughter agreed to a deal with prosecutors to implicate Wayne Brady and Carl Willis who would be convicted of aggravated murder and aggravated robbery the following year. The only evidence linking those two men to the murder was Slaughter's interrogation and his testimony at trial, which actually differed from the story he told during this interrogation. Slaughter ended up testifying that he was dealing drugs, that Braddy and Willis were helping him collect money from Purify, and that all three of them had shot Purify using the same gun. So he had so many different stories. And once he got on the stand, his story ultimately was that he was this drug dealer. Maurice was selling drugs for him. And he paid Wayne and Carl to kill him. Again, that's WTOL investigative reporter Brian Duggar, who has reported extensively on this story in recent years. So, I mean, you had four or five different versions, ultimately, of this story. And what he told on the stand was dramatically different than what he told in those interrogations. Braddy and Willis both received sentences of 23 years to life in prison. In exchange for his testimony, Slaughter's charges were reduced to a single charge of involuntary manslaughter. He was also required to admit guilt in that separate rape case against him, and he ended up receiving a reduced sentence of 18 years for both charges. So he went on the stand with that deal in his pocket already. And he knew that he had to follow through with that or else they could charge him with aggravated murder and he would never get out of prison. Because in that interrogation, he already admitted that he was involved and that he shot this kid. So they had him. It was either do we want you to do or you're going to prison for life. Slaughter was released from prison in 2016. And here's the thing, he has since claimed that he lied in the interrogation and provided false testimony at trial, which he says police helped him orchestrate. He now insists that he, Carl Willis, and Wayne Brady, they're all innocent. They said you killed Maurice Purify at four in the morning on June 15, 1998. Did you kill Maurice Purify? No, I did not kill Maurice Purify. Were you with anyone who killed Maurice Purify? No, I was not. Or do you, for to the best of your knowledge, did Wayne and Carl have anything to do with the death of Maurice Purifier? No, they did not. No, Wayne and Carl did not have anything to do with the killing of Maurice Purifier. As for the call to the tip line implicating Slaughter, he admits that he told a woman he was involved, but he told Brian Duggar he lied to her to seem intimidating, saying, quote, I wanted her to be scared of me so she wouldn't leave me. I wanted her to think... I was a gangster. 
So for five hours, you told the police that you had nothing to do with this. That's right. And their reaction was? Pretty much, you did have something to do with this. We already had a um, call on you about this matter. Um, they were just drilling me and just consistently antagonizing me and just trying to convince me and manipulate me that I partook in this, that I had, uh, and I'm just like, no, I did not. What is y'all talking about? I don't even know this kid. I don't even know the boy, man. So tell me like this, as a 17, 18 year old, whatever you were, tell me what your mental space was at that point. How were you feeling? So you said you were hungover. I so was hungover. I was exhausted. I was hungry. Um, I was tired, drained. And I just wanted out of there by any means necessary. What can I do or say to get the fuck out of this room? I just want out of here, period, out of this building. I want to go where I was at before. Like, why am I even here? As it stands today, Carl Willis and Wayne Brady, they remain in prison, the result of testimony from a witness who now says they didn't have anything to do with the murder. Both have maintained their innocence and are currently seeking a new trial. Yeah, these guys were convicted in 1998 of killing a 13-year-old boy. And, you know, we looked into this case for months. And the result of that, the state's main witness, Travis Slaughter, came forward and said, hey, I was mad at these guys. I lied. They had nothing to do with it. And as a result, he began working with the Ohio Innocence Project. They filed a motion for a new trial. The state has asked for an extension until October 30th, 2020, to respond to that motion. So it's gonna be a little while longer now. And I, I can tell you that Travis Slaughter actually called me two days ago and he said, Brian, I wanna get back into court. I wanna face Wayne and Carl. I wanna tell them that I lied, I'm sorry, and try to help them to get on with their life. So what do you think about this week's interrogation? We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can check out our Facebook group, Inside the Crime Vault. Anything you say is a Vault Studios production. You can learn more about our podcasts, including Bardstown and The Officer's Wife, at vaultstudios.com. Special thanks to our expert, William Douglas Woody, for his help on this week's episode. Vault Studios executive producers are Adam Ostro and Will Johnson. This week's episode was produced by Reed Redmond. For Vault Studios, I'm Eric Flack. 